we have been in the midst of a series that we're calling Imprint about the things that are important to us as a church. I was thinking this week about um, when we have people that come to our house, and there are a variety of types of people that come to our house. Um, I don't know about you, but we, we have uh, delivery people at our house on a regular basis, right? And uh, we, we are the ones that, you know, they, they just drop it off at the door. They may ring a doorbell, but they just get to the porch, and that's as far as they get to our house. The only relationship they ever have with us and our, our family is that they drop packages off at the porch. And then we have people sometimes that will knock on the door and want to talk to us about something. I don't know what that might be, that everyone in the neighborhood is getting their roof prepared and they need, we need to do that as well, or um, the energy-saving windows that need to be put in our house, or formally the encyclopedias we all needed as a family. We, you know, we have those people occasionally, and um, I am the one that generally greets those because even though I have a nice, sweet face here, I'm the one that can easily say, no, go, we don't want any today. Thank you, appreciate you, hope you're doing a great job, no, right? And that's as far as they get. We have people that, that sometimes we have people that make it in the front doorway. They just, they step in, but they just stay right there in that little area, the landing area there. Either they're dropping something off, they're picking something up, they're, one of our children is riding with them, and they're just stepping in for a minute, and that's as far as they get. We have people we invite into our home, right? And so sometimes those people are people that we invite over for dinner, or we invite over for an event, and maybe they're in the living room, and the kitchen, and the dining room, and maybe an outside space, and that's kind of where we settle, and that's where we are. Sometimes my kids have friends over, and they get into their bedrooms, and into their places, and their spaces. They have a little more access, because they're there overnight. Um, and then you have those of us that live in the house. My kids have access to almost every area of the house, although there are a couple of places that are still not where they need to go or they don't really need to have access, especially during certain times of years when gifts are um, being hidden in places. We will forget where they were being hidden and find them a year later. That sometimes happens. Like they, certain areas they can't have. And then you have Susan and I that own the house. Well, not technically. We pay a, a bank that owns the house, but we, we're working towards that, right? And so we, we, we have access to everything. So when you think about the different levels of access in our homes, you think about there, there are some people that, that have no access. They have porch access, some that have limited access, some that have a little more but not complete, some that live there that may have almost all but not all, and then those of us that own the house that can go anywhere in the house. Let's think about that this week in our relationship with Jesus. And I just wonder if, metaphorically speaking, we were talking about your life as a house, what is his access level See somebody you keep on the porch? No, not today. If you haven't really invited him in. And see somebody you give cursory access to, the common areas, the things that you want people to see, the things that you clean up for him to be able to see. You see somebody that's got access to almost everything, but there are a couple of areas you keep away from him. 
Or is he somebody that's got access to it all because he's the owner and everything is his? In the series, we've talked about the things that are vitally important to us as a church. And today we're going to talk about being passionately devoted followers, that our goal is to partner with God, allow God to work through us to transform people into passionately devoted followers of Jesus. And we know, I mean, this is Sunday morning at a church, this isn't news to you, that Jesus doesn't desire to be a guest in your house. He doesn't desire to just be a friend who's visiting your house. He doesn't even desire just to be a brother or family that is there in the house and has almost all the access. Jesus desires to own and transform your house. The first week of the series, and if you are a part of our church and you've missed either the last two weeks, and we had many people out at a great conference last week, and if you've missed any of the past two weeks, I think it'd be great to go back and watch those. Those uh, You can go to our website, fbcgillisville.com, and hit messages at the top, and it'll take you to where you can see them. But the first week we talked about the fact that our existence, the primary thing that we are doing is that we exist to glorify God. That's what we're about. Now, the way that works out is what we're talking about over these next few weeks, but that is the story. We exist to glorify God, period. Last week, if you were, those of you that weren't here, we talked about the fact that we believe in, stand on, and live under the authority of God's Word, that it is the basis upon which we live. And so this week, we're continuing this series, and we're talking today about the fact that we exist to glorify God by leading people to become passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now that's not original with us. That's not like some bold, brash statement. It is the task that Jesus gave to us before he left the earth. When we look in Matthew chapter 28, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what we have there is our commission. It's called the Great Commission, and it is for us to go. But the goal is not converts. The goal is not salvations, although salvation is a part of discipleship. The goal is passionately devoted disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ. And when we look through the rest of Scripture, especially the New Testament, it gives us a picture of what that truly means. What it gives us a picture of is that we are to be formed into, created into the image of our very Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it says, We all, with unveiled faces, that means those of us that have seen, have been saved by Christ, those of us that have had the revelation of God, are looking in a mirror to the glory of God and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. It basically says that after we're saved, when we 
look at God's glory, we see who He is, we understand the person of Jesus Christ, that what is happening in our lives, the goal of our lives, is to be transformed into the very image of who He is. Another way that it says this is over in Romans 8, chapter 29. It says, For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And without delving deeply, too deeply into the theology behind all this, the goal is that we would be transformed and conformed. The confirmation of it into the image of Christ is the end result. The transformation is the process of what that means. And we talked about this before. It literally is the word metamorphosis. It is the complete restructuring of who we are around the person and the place that Jesus has called us to be. You may not be aware of this, but there's lots of discussion happening in the church world right now about how do we move forward following what happened three years ago. And the statistics out there, they don't break down exactly like this, but, you know, statistics, sometimes it's easier just to kind of categorize them in this way. There's been some stuff written recently that kind of described what happened to the American church in the midst of and out of the pandemic and the way that it is playing out currently. And it's the third rules. There are three sets of people, and it breaks down almost evenly in the midst of our American church society. And in some ways, we see it even in our own church. There's a third of people that came through the pandemic and out of the pandemic and are now as committed, if not more committed, than they have ever been to the work of God and to the local church. Now they have walked through the pandemic and they have said, listen, I'm, uh, it, it kind of sharpened me, it showed some things to me, and I'm more committed now than I have ever been. There's a third of people that were attending church pre-pandemic. I'm not talking about those that weren't even attending, but those that were attending on a regular basis. A third of those nationally have decided that they're done. And unless there's a major intervention, they're not coming back, it's over. They've walked away. And then there's a third that are kind of sitting on the fence. Dipping their toes in every now and then. They're coming less frequently than they used to. They used to come two times a month. They're coming once a month. They used to come four times a month. They're coming three. And they're still thinking about it. So I was preparing for this message this week. I saw those kind of categories One of the first things that I thought in the midst of that is that if that's the result long-term of a very serious thing in the pandemic that happened to us as American Christians, then it is undoubtedly the truth that we failed as an American church to disciple people. If church to people that claim to be believers if being a part of God's family, if doing the work that God has called them to do is superfluous or something that they don't need anymore, then we have not done a good job of explaining what God is about and what He desires for us. And so today, I want to talk a little bit about 
What does it mean to give our lives completely to the Lord? And I want to do that in just a moment by talking about three areas, and I hope we get to all of them, three areas that I think a lot of us in this room and in this area have closed the doors to those areas in our lives. And we've said, Jesus, you're not welcome here. Again, the goal is to be passionately devoted followers of Christ. Colossians 1.28 says this, We proclaim Him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal. Mature. The, the word there is literally the word that means end or perfection. It's a word that means complete, ready before the Lord. We find out that this is what Jesus intends for us as a church and why he died on the cross for us. That's in Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5, we're going to read a passage that sometimes people focus so much on one part of it, which is an important part to focus on that we miss the second part. It says, husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. That's important, vital. And we focus and we preach a lot about the phrases, about the submission passage and the loving passage and the respect and all of that's there. And we should. But verse 26 reminds us that the reason Christ gave himself for the church was to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this. He died on the cross to wash us from our sins, to cleanse us from who we are in order to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. That Jesus' goal and his death on the cross was not just our salvation, although it accomplished our salvation, but it began the process in us that salvation does of turning us into the person that he called us to be, of shaping us into the image of Christ. There's a there's a, a story that is attributed to Michelangelo, although it hasn't been proven that it's to Michelangelo, but it's, it's a parable, if nothing else, and it's good. Someone once asked, once asked him how he carved the statue of David, the masterpiece of David. And the quote attributed to him that has not been proven, but seems feasible, is that he said, I look at the block of wood and I know David is already in there and I just chip away everything that is not him. Whether that's Michelangelo or not, that's basically what Christ does in our lives. As he sees what is in us and he knows the end product, the telos, the end, the maturation of that, and he says to us, I'm going to chip away everything that is not that. So today I want to talk about three areas that I think if Christ has his chiseling tools out in our lives, in our culture, in our day, these are three areas where he wants to chisel. And the first is disordered loves. The second is the way we deal with emotions. And the third is how we deal with our past. 
I jokingly said a little bit earlier to some people that this is a little bit of a baloney sermon. And that means I can cut it off wherever I need to and it'll still be good, right? Y'all don't get that. All right, that's all right. We're going to try to get through as much as this as we can. We're going to get as much this. We're going to get as far in this as God intends for us to. The first one is disordered loves. Mark chapter 10. The story of a man that comes to Jesus and by all accounts is a man that is honestly seeking the Lord. Honestly wants to know what it would mean to follow him. Honestly has a desire to follow Jesus. It says in chapter 10 in verse 17, And as he was setting on a journey, that's Jesus, a man ran up to him, knelt down before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Again, I want you to look at the posture of this man. Many of you know the end of this story. Don't let the end of this story ruin what is happening in this moment. He is running up to him. He is bowing at his feet. He is asking him, what do I need to do to live eternally? What do I need to do to follow the Lord? What must I do? It is an honest question from a man who is already in a position of surrender. Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commands. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said, teacher, I've kept all of these from my youth. Now, sometimes when we read that, we read that in a haughty or proud way. Like, well, I've done all that. But I'm not sure that's the attitude that is there. He's still seeking Jesus. He's saying, okay, I've done that. What else? The law was meant to be a tutor to show us the need that we have for something greater than the law for salvation. And I believe there's a chance, and we can't get into this this man's mind, we don't know anything about what's going on in his motivation, but if you just look into it, you can reasonably say that it could have been this man was coming and basically saying, I have found the law lacking, and I know there is something more. I have heard you teaching Jesus, and I believe you hold the key to eternal life. What must I I do to inherit that eternal life. Verse 21. Looking at him, Jesus loved him. It's an interesting phrase to put in right there. And said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all you have and give to the poor and you have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. But he, the man, was dismayed by this dismayed by this demand and went away grieving because he had many possessions one of the things that i think is true for a lot of people that are followers of jesus in our part of the world here in what used to be considered the buckle of the bible belt i don't know if that depiction is apt anymore for either the bible belt or the buckle part of it But we live in a culture where Christianity is still part of the culture. That's not true in all parts of America today, but in our part of America, Christianity is still a part of the culture. And I think there are many people like this man, and maybe it's not wealth, maybe it's something else, who have their lives pretty well in order, and from the outside looking in, most of us would think, man, they've got it together. Man, they're following the Lord. Man, they are doing the right thing. Those are people we ought to look after. Those are the kind of people we ought to follow. And 
yet in their heart or in their life there is a disordered love where they have put something in their life above their relationship and their priority with Jesus. And if Jesus is going to chisel us into the people that he has called us to be, into that perfected form that he presents to himself at the end of time in eternity, as he's doing that, one of the ways he is going to do that, one of the things he has to address in our lives, are loves that we have that are disordered or in the improper sequence when it comes to our relationship with God. In fact, one description of discipleship is reordering our loves around Jesus and what he loves. You see, when we think of discipleship, a lot of us immediately think of right and wrong, good things to do and bad things to do. We think of a list of things that are all right for Christians and things that aren't, or things that we should do and things that we shouldn't do. And we even sometimes have categories of should do, shouldn't do, and depends on the situation do. But discipleship ultimately is not about what we are doing, right or wrong. It's about the affections of our heart and the people we are becoming. And it is easy to let other loves creep into that space in our lives that is reserved primarily and first for Jesus. I mean, it's easy for me to let my family creep into that place. Suddenly I'm more in love with and concerned about my family than I am about my relationship with Jesus and what he's calling me to do. My job, which is also my ministry, my church, which is us, it's easy to let that creep into that place of priority over my relationship with Jesus. Entertainment and material things are vying at all times. Sports is vying at all times. I have all of these things in my life. And some of them are not necessarily good, but some of them are good things. Things that we should be concerned about. But what I have to realize in my life is that I love my family best. I love this church best. I love the people that are in my life best when I love Jesus most. And so this rich man comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm doing all the right things. I got all the check marks of the right things to do. And Jesus says one thing. Now here's the thing about that particular request. He doesn't ask this man to do anything more than he asked his other disciples to do. He asked all of them to leave where they were, leave everything they have, and follow him. He asked every one of them to drop the nets and follow him, to stand up from the tax collector's booth and follow him. He's just asking this man, who happens to have more than those other people, so it's a bigger ask to him. At least that's what he thinks. But I want you to notice again what I pointed out when I read it, that strange phrase that says, Jesus looking at him and loving him. He knew that the most loving thing Jesus could do in this moment was not to let it go, but to ask him to give up the thing that had taken priority in his heart and was above Jesus in his priority list. And he's asking him that for his own benefit. He's asking that for his own freedom. Jesus is asking him to give up what will not 
last to attain what will. He's asking him to give up that which will fail him to gain that which will not. And if we're honest with ourselves and we think about our own lives, sometimes we want to say to the Lord, can you just leave that area alone? I mean, I mean, if you look at what I'm doing here and how I'm serving here and what I'm doing here and how this is going on, Lord, Lord, I'm, I'm, giving, you, I'm giving you all that stuff. Can I just have this area? I remember having a conversation with um, one of my friends who had gotten married, and before he was married, he was notoriously unorganized, messy. Um, he was a college friend, and those of you that have lived around college dorms, those guys are known, right? Like you go into their rooms and you're just like, I think that rapper is from six weeks ago. Yeah, it'll get there, right? And by the end of the semester, they're, they're buying the, 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 uh, you know, the uh, chemicals that are on separate lists for being able to buy to be able to clean the room because they haven't cleaned it in four months. Yeah, yeah, not if you know you, those kind of repu- Okay. And so I asked him one time, he got married, and he married, as would be the case, someone that was known for being really organized and neat. Y'all, y'all know that in marriage, sometimes you, that happens, right? And I asked him just jokingly one time, I said, does that ever get to be an issue? And he said, I just ask her if I can have one area that I can keep messy, somewhere locked away in the house. That's how some of us treat Jesus. Like, I've cleaned up all this stuff, Jesus. Listen, can I just have one area that I can keep messy? Some people would look at this and go, Jesus, I mean, this guy's a good God. He came to you. He's bowed before your feet. Just, just be easy on the guy. Don't, in fact, Jesus, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but you've been talking a lot lately about the fact you don't have a place to lay your head, you don't have somewhere to go, that, that you don't have the kind of material resources that you need to accomplish this. But you know what might not be a bad thing is if you talk to him in a way, this guy's got lots of money, he's got lots of capital. He could be a real asset to what we're doing here, Jesus. That may have even been what Judas was thinking, you know, like as the treasure. Like, he could be a real asset here. Could you, could you just kind of bring him along and then as you're bringing him, disciple him on stewardship and talk to him about giving all of that and we could really benefit from that, Jesus. But the truth is, Jesus refuses to be a guest in this man's life. And he refuses to be a guest in our lives. I saw one pastor preaching on this particular passage of Scripture said that Jesus did not come to coddle us in our idolatry. He came to call us to complete surrender with all of our lives. And then at some point, He will lovingly go after the gap between what we have publicly bowed before Him with and the private thing in our lives that we hold back from Him. This is a question I've asked you before. We've talked about this kind of thing before. But here's a question that really kind of gets to the heart of what it is that Jesus may need to chisel. And by that, it may not be complete surrender. It may not be complete give up. But it may be, hey, you need to reorder your loves in this area. This is the question that if Jesus were to pose to you, what would the answer be to that? May reveal an idolatrous place in your life. This is the question. Is there anything Jesus could ask you to give up that if he did, it would make you consider walking away? 
is a disordered love, a closed door in your life. Is there a room, a place that you say that's off limits? I love it too much to let you take care of it. Second area that we don't always handle well. We're going to go a little more quickly on the last two. I think the first one is probably where a lot of us are. You can turn over if you want with me to Matthew chapter 8. These are all going to be in the gospel. We'll do one in Matthew and then one in John to finish up. Matthew chapter 8. It's a story that happens. And Jesus and his disciples are out on the water. And Jesus desires for us to handle our emotions well. Matthew 8, starting in verse 23, says, And he got into the boat, and his disciples followed him. And suddenly a violent storm arose on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But Jesus kept sleeping. So the disciples came and woke him up and saying, Lord, save us, we're going to die. And he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? He got up, we beat the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and the sea obey him. Now let me just say right off the bat that the primary message of this little snippet of the life of Jesus is not how we handle emotions. But I do think he speaks in the midst of this to the reality that we need to understand about what emotions are in our lives and then to ask a question about it. Because what he directs his discussion to them about before he rebukes the wind, before he calms the sea, before he does any of that, he speaks directly to their fear. Right? Why are you afraid? What are you afraid from? What is making you so freaked out right now? Don't get scared. And what he's revealing to them in that moment by speaking to them before he calms them to let them know is first of all, they lack faith. They lack trust in the Lord. But the way their lack of faith demonstrates itself is through the fear they have in the moment. There's a book on the Psalms by an Old Testament scholar and the book is called The Cry of the Soul. And in The Cry of the Soul, he says, every emotion of ours is a theological statement. Every emotion we experience is a statement about what we believe about God. And he says in the midst of that that our emotions are like messengers from the battle lines of our heart and mind. And so what he means by that is that our emotions, how we feel, the things that we deal with, the things that we struggle with, are messengers, they give signals, they give us an understanding of what's really going on in the depths of who we are. And so when we're scared, it means that our faith is being tested and we're not winning that war. When we're worried, it means that our trust is being tested and we're not winning that battle. That in the midst of that, that our discouragement, our stress, even our joy in those moments of joy and contentment, they are messengers about what's happening. Now, listen to me. I am not saying 
that I just, just believe it and it'll be okay. Just trust and it'll be okay. I'm not talking about a name it and claim it kind of faith. What I'm saying is that our emotions, we don't always handle real well, are signals about what's truly happening in our lives. And so when we're scared, it means that we haven't understood the size and the love of our God. When we're consistently angry, it means that we haven't understood that our God is in complete control. That there are parts of our lives where we get angry about politics or angry about money or worried about money or worried about the condition of a particular social structure or we get angry about what happens with one of our neighbors or angry with what happens in our church or disgruntled about what's going on there and that our language suddenly becomes more of criticism and worry and fear and condescension to others. When that begins to happen, there is something going on in our heart that needs to be addressed. And what Jesus is doing here with these guys in the boat is he is saying to them, your fear is showing that there's something in your heart that needs to be addressed at this moment and you're not handling your emotions well. What happens most of the time with our emotions is that we do one of two or three things. We either ignore them completely, like, ah, uh, just who I am. It's just how I act. It's just how I've always been. We elevate them and we worry about them and we get so worried about how much we're worrying that we start worrying about how much we're worrying about how much we're worrying and we start moving in on ourselves and it becomes debilitating. Or we get guilty about them. For many of us, emotions is one of those doors we've closed our lives and just said, Jesus, this is just who I am. I'm just a hothead. I'm just one that questions everything. I just seem to find the problems in everything and have to tell people about them. That's just who I am, Jesus. And when we give our lives to Jesus and we surrender to Him, here's the truth about allowing Him to transform us. There is nothing in our lives that we can rightfully say, that's just who I am to Him. He has access to change anything. And this is the last area. Not only our disordered loves, not only our emotions do we not handle well, we close off from the Lord. But the last area that we close off to the Lord, don't let Him deal with, it's our past. I just want to read one verse out of the story of John 4. I mean, I could have done a sermon on all of these, but felt like the Lord was saying, hey, put them put here for today. I don't know what that may be. There's somebody in this room that needs to hear each of these three things. I'm not going to read the full story. If you've been around church at all, you know this full story. This is the story of the Samaritan woman. The woman comes to the well. She's there. Jesus is there. They start to talk, and she uh, begins to describe things. And Jesus said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have one. He says, I know. You've had five, and you're living with a God. It's not even your husband now. Just showing that not only is she a Samaritan woman that shouldn't be talking to Jesus according to their customs and rules, but he, she is a sinful Samaritan woman that should not be talking to Jesus in their culture and in their understanding. And Jesus wants to break through her past. 
Can I tell you that maybe your past is as checkered or more checkered than this woman that meets Jesus at the well? But the point of this story really isn't the whole discussion about spirit and truth that we get in there, although that's important about what true worship is. It's not even a lesson for his disciples about all that's happening there, although that's important as the disciples come back and like, we, we, you haven't eaten? And he's like, no, I don't need any food. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I, you know the little glances that'll be there? Have you been talking to her? Like, what's going on there? And there was a lesson for them to learn. But I think the most important thing that comes out of this particular story in scripture comes after most of you in your bible will have a break for the story and it'll move on to the next thing and sometimes when we do that we just assume that what's happening there is that they have moved on to something else and it's not as important or it's a different story but in john chapter 4 this is what it says in the verses that follow the story in verse 28 then the woman left her water jar went into town And told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? What scripture describes from there is that there is a revival that happens in the town because of this woman's testimony. And so here's the reality. There are some of you that are letting who you were prevent you from becoming who you were intended to be. And what God does through Jesus is he immediately declares us righteous and good and our guilt is gone. But he also begins the process of chiseling away the past in our lives in order to set us free to be the people that he has called us to be. And what some of you in this room need to hear is no matter what you've done or what your past has been, today can be a fresh start to be used for the glory of God with a reordered life that is seeking to live out your love and your desire to please and to serve the God who has saved you. Not because we have to, but because we get to. And as a church... Our goal is to create people through God, God doing it, to glorify Him by helping people on that path of transformational discipleship where they are conformed to the image of Christ for the glory of God. And if we get everything else wrong, and our structure's weird, and budget's crazy, and Building is not what it needs to be, but we are making disciples who are being transformed by Jesus Christ. If we are instigating that process alongside of God, then we are a successful church. And if we get everything else right, we balance the budget and the building looks great and we have lots of Sunday school classes and we have lots of attendance, if we were suddenly to triple in size but we weren't making disciples of Jesus but just drawing a crowd, then we fail. This is what we are about. And one of the things that the last three years have shown us is that we didn't do a very good job of that as an American church, and honestly, as First Baptist Goodlettsville. And it's time to ask the question, so what do we do now? Well, it starts with us in this room. 
And the first thing we ask is, are there any disordered loves in my life that I have shut the door and locked it away from Jesus and said, just let that be. Just let it go. Are there emotions that are revealing to me that there are deeper issues in my walk with Jesus because of what I am feeling at this moment, the fear that I have, the worry that I have, the critical nature that is a part of me? And have I prevented my future from starting because I'm holding on to something in my past? And then we just let Jesus enter into those spaces and heal and clean and redeem. What kind of access does Jesus have to your life? And are you willing to give him the deed and say, take over everywhere? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray in this moment that you would work in and through our lives and that we would truly surrender everything to you. every corner, nook, cranny in our lives, we would surrender. And then in the midst of that, Lord, we would be constantly in a place of allowing you to chisel away that which is not you, which is not our reflection of you, and that we would allow you to work in and through us. We pray that for our church, Lord, that we would be a church where we're glorifying you by leading people, teaching people, discipling people how to be passionately devoted followers of Jesus Christ. And Lord, in the midst of that, that your name would receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.